For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter from the Apostle Paul to this spiritual community in the Greek city of Corinth. And, you know, this was a group that has a lot of problems. We've been studying these problems over the past several weeks. As we've studied 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, basically they were, things were so messed up in this, this community, Paul had to go back and relay the foundation. Starting in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, what is the cross? Chapter 2, what's a Christian? Chapter 3, what is the church? Chapter 4, what's a spiritual leader? And now... He begins to get into some of the issues in this group. Really at the heart of all this has been a discussion of the wisdom of the world versus the backward wisdom of God. And you know, God wants to change the way we think about things. Um, you know, we, there, some of the ways God thinks about things, they seem sort of backward and strange to us at first, but eventually we need to learn the truth of Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. And tonight, we're going to see him start to apply the wisdom of God to some other areas other than the divisions they were having in this group, including the wisdom of God applied to the area of tough love. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, it's actually reported, and I can't believe this, he says, that there is sexual immorality among you, strange sexual practices, and of a kind that even the Gentiles do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So, Corinth had more than unity problems, all right? That's clear. <laughs> sleeping with stepmom, you know, it's probably not the mom. I think he would have said a man is sleeping with his mom. It's, it's worded a little bit differently there. His father's wife. Uh, apparently, you know, dad's new, uh, you know, sexy wife here, sexy stepmom. And, uh, you know, the son meets, meets her and he's like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Did it hurt when you fell from heaven <laughs> into my kitchen? <laughs> and next thing you know, they're getting it on. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> Sleeping with, and Paul's like, are you kidding me? How did he wait till chapter five to bring this up? That's what I don't understand. <laughs> Complete violation of God's teaching on sex. And in fact, next chapter, he, he's got like half a chapter on God's view of sex. And so we're not gonna get into that this week. We're gonna save that for a couple of weeks from now. For now, we'll just say God does have a will for your sexuality. He's got guidelines on how that needs to be practiced. And it's not because God is trying to keep you from having fun. It's because God wants you to have the best sex possible. He designed it. It needs to be done in accordance with his design. And uh, we violate that to our own destruction and harm. And so it's not only, though, in violent, uh, if, uh, fra fragrant violation of God's teaching on sex... It's even violating the Corinthian view of sex. I mean, you know, it's pretty bad when the Corinthians are like, ooh, gross. That is really bad. We, we don't even do that here, okay? You know, it's like dad, father, and son sharing the same woman. Why can't you guys just go like play catch like normal father and son do, okay? 
This is the, you know, it was like the talk of Corinth. It says, it's reported, everybody's talking about this. This is a disgrace. And how are they responding to this? I'm sure a few of them saw a problem with it. You know, there was uh, some members of the leadership apparently that brought this a report to Paul and brought a letter back from him. I'm sure they were critical of it. They're the ones that brought a lot of reports to Paul about problems they saw in this group. But by and large, the attitude was not a critical attitude. In fact, Paul says, you're proud. You're so proud of yourselves that this is going on in your group. And maybe it was like, we're just so tolerant and accepting of this guy's sexual practices. You know, whatever your sexual preference, just come here and we will affirm it. Come as you are, that's totally cool. Whatever's making you happy right now, that's, that's what we're all about in this church. Maybe there was that. Some churches seem pretty proud of that. Or maybe some of them were like, well, you know, I see some problems here, but he has had a pretty rough life. I mean, his dad was always so hard on him. His mom was never really there for him. He's probably just confused, perhaps. You know, I, I hope it changes, but maybe, maybe he just needs more acceptance, more love, more time, more grace. And we are the kind of place that really accepts people. We don't judge people. We give people grace here. We're Corinth, the Corinthian church. Paul's got such a different perspective from these guys. He says... How about instead of patting yourselves on the back, he says, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? Why not some sorrow over the damage he's doing to himself, to this woman he's using, to his family, to his other relationships, and to the reputation of Christ in this city? And you should put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this. Not only should you be sorrowful, but you need to kick this guy out until he changes his mind and say, we do not accept that here. We're not gonna hold a lower bar than the city of Corinth. This is, this, is, this is God's people here. We're gonna hold the bar that he holds in this town, in this church. And you know, modern readers read this and they're like, whoa, where's, hold on now, where is the love in this situation? What about helping this guy? I mean, if he's struggling this bad inside of the Christian community with our support, with our love, How's he ever gonna resist this if we cut him off from what we've got here, cutting him off from his support network? Come on, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, that's a great question. What would Jesus do? Jesus would do exactly what Paul is prescribing. Some people are a little surprised to realize that what Paul is teaching here is also just the same thing that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. Verses 15 through 17, Jesus said, look, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Yeah, it's, um, he's not saying you do this for every sin. In fact, later we're gonna see a list of serious sins that qualify for this, but some do qualify. And uh, he says, you know, you go to him one-on-one. -on -one. This is a relational thing. You share with him what you're seeing, um, calling him to change, or maybe at least pray about this and discuss it again later. There might be a couple of these conversations but maybe you're not getting satisfactory resolution. So it says, if he doesn't listen, take one or two more with you, Jesus said. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. He might say, you know, I think we need to sit down with a couple of the other brothers and sisters and talk about this. And so you may be bringing somebody else in on this conversation to help this person see the seriousness of what's going on. 
If he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Now, I doubt he's recommending telling it to a room of 300 people like we've got here. But, you know, this would make sense in a house church setting. You know, 15, 20, 25 people maybe. People who are close to the situation, who are directly affected by it. You know, tell it to that group. Tell it to the house church. And talk about it as a group. You may need to plead for this person to listen. Different people may need to share how they're affected. It may need to be a group effort here to break through to the person if the sin is serious enough. And he says, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. How did they treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Well, in, in common Jewish society, they, they didn't have interactions with them. They would have, you know, they might have to do business with them. But they were not just sitting around hanging out you know, watching the game. Um, they were not having meals together. They were having, you know, business-like, perfunctory contact together. And Jesus says, you may need to take a stand, this kind of a stand with somebody, in certain extreme cases. This is what Jesus would do. Disciplining love, tough love, love that includes discipline. What is the goal? Let's talk about this a little bit. There's patient pleading over many conversations. That's what you can see here from Jesus' teaching. And we'll see from Paul's as well. There's a, a process here. We're willing to take as long as it, it takes to get through to the person. But if it's clear that we're not progressing and things may be even getting worse, we might need to involve others. Involving others on an as-needed basis. It's not punishment but restoration, that's the goal here. He, the goal is to win your brother. We're not, this is not like a courtroom where the crime must fit the punishment and, and we must exact just the right sentence for this person. No, this is, we're trying to do what is loving for this person, whatever is gonna break through to this person. That means we might feel free to, to dole out no consequences if that's what's best. But we might need to take a stand here with this person. Definitely not saying we have the power to send people to hell. Some church's teaching on this makes it sound like if we cut you off, then we cut you off from the, the font of forgiveness and you are gonna go to hell unless you can get back in with us. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying we have the power to remove forgiveness from someone. God is the one who makes decisions like that. We don't. The goal is also not to eliminate all sin in the church. We, for one, we can never possibly do that. Two, this is only for very serious sins that we'll take a look at later in this passage. No, the goal is to create a safe place. Christian community should be the safest place on earth. A place where it's safe to let down my guard, where it's safe to be me, where it's safe for people to see who I really am, a safe place to grow, a safe place to do life together. And when you have some of these really harsh elements allowed going on where people are showing up to home church hunting for their next sexual conquest, it becomes not a safe place anymore. And that's, that's, that's the goal here, to create a place where people can really grow. It's also not getting people to do my will, but it's trying to look at what does scripture say and holding people up to God's standard. That's really one of the basis, basics here is what is the starting point for what we even weigh in on here. It's not something we decide, or my preference, it's something that God decides. And we, we've got his word showing us those instructions. Jesus really here is only describing one of many tools in our belt for helping each other grow into the image of Christ. You know, one of the things that we're supposed to do is to try to help one another grow, to be more like Christ. And so, you know, at the kind of the, the low end here, a very common 
with none of the intensity that we're talking about here with this ultimatum is just modeling. You know, simply living out the way God wants me to live and other people seeing that in close quarters. You know, I, I can't believe how much I learned when I first started hanging around home church. You know, I would watch people and I would be like, oh, so that's how a guy is supposed to talk to a girl. That's unlike things I've learned before. Or, so this is what a real close relationship between two guys looks like. I'd never seen a warm, close relationship between guys. It was always us just kind of pounding on each other and keeping our guard up. I mean, maybe if somebody got drunk, they would really open up and break down. But other than that, it was keeping people at arm's length, keeping up the front. You know, to see people, you know, reading their Bibles, admitting they're wrong, excited about the right things. I, would, I just soaked that up and I learned so much. And this is one of the great things we can do for each other, just doing life together. We learn, we learn so much. A lot of it is caught, not taught. You know, a little more intentional than that would be encouragement. And there should be so much of this going on in our groups, in our lives. You know, this is where you catch somebody doing something right and you express positive affirmation to them. And, you know, honestly, a lot of the negative things that we see in people's lives, if we just ignore them and, and encourage the positive, a lot of those negative things will just sort of stop. And the thing we encourage is going to grow. It feels so good to get encouragement. I just feel like I'm boosted along. This is, this is one of the words Scripture uses for the, the kind of impact we can have in each other's lives. A little more intentional than encouragement would be instruction. Scripture teaches the need to instruct one another. This would be teaching. This would be maybe pointing out, I noticed, you know, God's word says this. I noticed you're doing this. Maybe you should try this. Um, you know, we might need to learn how to do certain things God teaches in his word. Like next week when we study, what does scripture teach about how to resolve a conflict, especially when you're stuck in conflict? There's so much good biblical teaching on that that we need from each other. A little stronger than that still would be admonition. Scripture has plenty to say about this. This would be a strong urging. You really need to think about this. I really urge you to consider this. Even stronger than that would be the rebuke or the reproof. This is where we kind of square up and we're like, this needs to stop. I'm noticing this and, and this needs to change in your life. This is one of the words Jesus used in that Matthew 18 passage. But then finally, when all else fails, Scripture does, in extreme cases, recommend an ultimatum, like the teaching from Jesus, like the passage we're studying tonight. This should be pretty rare, but it's like nothing else has worked. We've talked and talked. It doesn't even seem like you're trying anymore. You know, your words might say the right thing, but your actions are showing what you really think. And this is really serious. It's really affecting people. And, and this has got to stop. And unless you stop, you can't come here anymore. I'm willing to put the relationship on the line because I care about you so much. An ultimatum. I think our culture does have some category for this, even though this seems shocking at first. You know, in families, sometimes you'll have an intervention where you have a family member that's so out of control. I don't know if some of you have been a part of one of these. There was, a, I guess, a show on A&E called Intervention that ran for about a decade where they would just, they would go in, they would, this was reality TV, they would look at a family, they would look at the destructive things happening and they would, they would document all that and they would film this intervention and um, <clears throat> where the family is sitting down and saying, this has got to change, it's us and rehab or you stay on the bottle and you get out. 
you've got to get some help. And they'd even go back and they'd show how is it working. This, this does work in a lot of cases. Intervention in families. Um, companies, you know, will fire people for theft, for sexual harassment. We've certainly seen plenty of that in the past six months of people being fired for using their positions of power um, to use other people sexually. And people applaud that. And they say, yeah, it's about time this person got what he deserved. Uh, nations realize we gotta have certain standards if we're gonna have a functioning society. You can't allow for murder, theft. Things would not work. Rape would not, you know, this is just not work in society. It's gotta be a place where we can, we can function. Um, organizations also have standards. You know, you think about the NRA, like you can be a member of the NRA, but then if you go, go to your chapter meeting and start talking about how we need a lot more gun control, eventually they're gonna be like, dude, you're out. That's not what we're about. We're not about gun control, okay? Um, you know, you, you might be a member of Greenpeace, an environmental organization, but if you show up and you start denying that global warming exists, they'll be like, look, you're free to hold that opinion, but not here, okay? This is Greenpeace. I don't know if you guys saw the story from a couple years ago where um, the, the, the NAACP, the, the chapter of the Spokane, um, the president of the Spokane chapter of that organization was a, um, it turns out she was, she was not black, she was a white woman pretending to be black. And they were like, you can't hold this role. <laughs> You've been lying to us about your race this whole time. She's like, well, I, I really feel like I'm black. And they're like, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> Self-help books, you ever read these? They're like, just get rid of all the negative people in your life. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's pretty harsh. But they're like, you know, it, uh, top resolutions for 2018, get rid of all the negative people around you. It's like, what, eliminate negative relationships? And so really the question is not whether they remove people, it's why in these different situations. And that's one of the different starting points is as Christians, we don't feel the freedom to determine ourselves who, you know, what are the criteria for being involved here? We let God determine that. It's his, it's his church, his community. He's the one that started it. He's the head and he's the one that determines what goes, what is acceptable inside the body of Christ. And our job is to study what he says and to set the banks of the river and say this, we're gonna stay between these here. And you don't, have to, you don't have to agree with us, but in certain cases, you can't be here if you're gonna determine to practice the other thing. There's a lot of freedom, but we do have to have some kind of standards. And that's what Paul is talking about here with this egregious case of sexual immorality. And so he begins to talk about how to practice this, kind of similar to what Jesus said. Paul said, even, for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and as one who's present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus, the one who's been doing this. He's like, look, I've heard enough. Everybody's heard enough about this guy. So he's talking about how. How do we do this? He says, when you're assembled, so you need to get together. You've had the other conversations. We need to get together. He says, I'll be with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus will be present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. All right, what does that mean? And what sounds like Paul's like, the only cure for him is human sacrifice. <laughs> That's the only way he can be saved. 
Not a call for human sacrifice, okay? That would not be very restorative, edifying in any way. Scripture forbids human sacrifice. (laughs) Now, what's he talking about here? Well, what he's saying is, you know, Christian community is a safe place, but the world is a harsh place. And what some people want to do is they want the freedom to use other people any way they want, like this guy was, and also to have the cushion and the safety and the support of my Christian friends. And so as I go on these self-destructed benders and my life falls apart, I've got the rest of the people giving me a hug, putting me back on my feet. We're taking up a collection again for this brother over here because he's destroyed his life once again. And uh, it, you know what he's saying is, we're gonna remove that safety net because this has gone on for so long and you are out and you get to experience what the world really feels like. You know, some people feel like I'm just missing out because I'm not going for the world. And I've heard people say that and they just lament about this for months and months and months and finally they just go for it. And a couple months later they're back and they're like, that was so bad. Can't believe how bad that was. Uh, I would try to talk to people and they, I couldn't even, they couldn't even, I'm used to relationships and people weren't and it just was not a safe place. And they're back. You know, I remember in high school, I would complain about my mom's cooking all the time. And nothing she made was ever good enough. And finally, one day, my mom was like, okay, tomorrow you're cooking. And I was like, okay. So, you know, I had like this, you know, I decided I was going to make tacos. And it was like this disaster, you know, two and a half hour labor-intensive nightmare. Just trying to make some adequate tacos for the family, and you know what? I stopped complaining about mom's dinners after that. <laughs> because I thought, you know, this is actually pretty good <laughs> compared to the alternative. It's what it's like sometimes here. You know, when he says for the destruction of the flesh, you know, sometimes the flesh means body, physical body. A lot of times though, it means what it means here in scripture. There's, even after you become a Christian, there's this part of you that still rebels against God. It still makes you want to sin. It's, it's uh, the sin nature is what it's called in some other places. It's still there. And um, sometimes when the flesh gets its way, the flesh sees how bad its way really is. And uh, it can be sort of a wake-up call. It can have a sobering effect to realize just how bad it is. To, to realize that there's a way that seems right to me, but in the end it leads to death. And you know, Paul isn't saying the only way to resist the world is to go for the world. Um, again, some people grown up in the church, they feel like, ah, man, I just, I better go for the world so I have a good story about how God saved me or something like that or I'm really missing out and woe is me. No, um, we can learn plenty about sin, without, about the world without going for it. We can, we can learn what scripture says. We can learn from other people's experiences. I can learn from my own experiences with sin, which are plentiful without going full in and walking away from God. And uh, some people do, and yeah, I mean, you might come to your senses and come back, although there's no guarantee. And then at that point, you'll have to work back through the damage to yourself and other people and all the shame and regret and the lost time and feeling bad about that too. And um, if you're foolish enough to do that, then the wise will be waiting here to try to help you get back on your feet. And I know there's people here in this room who've had that experience. And, um, but, you know, I don't have to stick my hand in the fire to know it's going to hurt. There's other ways I can learn that lesson. And what Paul says is, uh, this guy, 
you've, you've been patient enough. He's done enough damage. He's, he's thrown his lot where it's going to land. You need to bring this guy before the church and um, throw him out. Put him out for the destruction of his flesh, it says. And this really is getting into the why of church discipline, not the how, but the why. And really, it's so his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And you know, that word for saved, you know, it, it can mean like, you know, your eternal salvation. But it can also just, it's a pretty broad word. It can just mean healthy, in good shape, whole, sound, you know. Basically, he's, he's going to have a good day, you know, when the Lord comes back. He's going to have a life that really counted for something, is what Paul is saying here. That's the hope. If he changes his, his mind and turns things around and comes back, we're hoping to break through to this guy. That is the goal. And it's not this harsh, just cast him away forever. Like so much of the world's discipline is punishment. No, the goal is restoration. And so really, one reason why we do this is for the good of the person who's caught in sin. You know, they're, they're trapped, and um, we, we're trying to restore them with gentleness, but sometimes this is the best thing we can do for the person. We can say, thy will be done. Have it your way. But you're not going to do it all over us as well. You're going to be on your own when you try this, because that's what you want, apparently. It's also for the good of the Christian community. And that's what he goes on to say. In verse six, he says, you know, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Yeah, so he brings up the illustration of yeast. You know, today we get our yeast in dried granule packets from the grocery store. They didn't have that back then. They had leaven. Might have looked something like this. You'd have a little, um, you know, if you wanted to make bread, you would mix some flour and water together and kind of make, a, make some dough, and then you would either have or borrow a little pinch of a, a leavened lump. Might look something like this. And what this is, is this is dough that is permeated with yeast, which is a fungus. So it's this fungus-filled lump of dough. And you mix, you put that in, you mix it down in, you know, a couple of ounces with a couple of, maybe a couple of pounds of dough. A couple pounds, uh, ounces of leavened dough is all you really need. And you let it sit there. And over a couple of days, um, over a period of time, that yeast will multiply and the fungus will invisibly, silently make its way through the entire lump and the whole thing, it'll start to be kind of bubbly and, and frothy and, um, you know, the, it, it releases carbon dioxide. That's, how, that's why bread has little holes in it when you bake it up. It's, it's the little air bubbles from the yeast. And it's a pretty cool process, actually. But uh, in Scripture, leaven usually represents sin. And so what he's saying is, you know, what you've done is you've taken this rotten little fungus-filled lump and you stuck it right in the middle of your home church, right in the middle of the group. And he says, you'd be amazed how that spreads. You'd be amazed the impact this has on your church. Leaven usually represents sin in Scripture. And he says, get rid of the old yeast so you may be an unleavened batch as you really are. You, you can't unleaven a leavened lump. He says, you just got to throw it out. And that's what, he, that's what I'm calling on you to do here, he says. Don't think you can keep that contained. It's going to work its way. People are so connected to one another. We're members of one another. We're so connected. It is going to have, uh, that fungus is going to permeate your entire group. 
He says, you really are. This, this is who you really are. You need to be who you are, is what he says. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, so reference to an Old Testament ritual. One of the most important festivals God prescribed for them, the Passover. He, this, was, this goes back 1,500 years before the time this letter was written, where the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God, God was going to set them free. He was going to lead them out of slavery that very night. And he says, I want you to observe the Passover. I want you to make some unleavened bread, and I want you to eat that. And he says, I also want you to get a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and I want you to kill it, and I want you to smear its blood on your doorpost, and I want, then I want you to eat that lamb. And the meaning of the festival was this. That lamb would be killed, the blood smeared on the door, and what God said was, tonight I'm gonna take the firstborn in every household unless the lamb has been slain and the blood has marked that household. And God said, my angel will come to that house and if it sees the blood of the lamb, it will pass over because the death has already occurred here. And he says, Christ is our Passover lamb. We are observing the true Passover. This was the whole message of the cross. The cross that's foolishness to the world, but to us it's the wisdom of God and the power of God where he, Christ is our lamb, he is unblemished, he has been slain, he marks us with his blood. Anyone who's willing to receive his cleansing, his forgiveness can receive it. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you get forgiven forever. And he says our Passover lamb has been slain and so we're celebrating the true Passover. And so he says, so we should be unleavened. Therefore, let's keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness. That's the, the stuff in the bread we're trying to get rid of. No, he said, we're the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you can't have sincerity and truth if you've got this sort of thing going on. The hypocrisy this injects into a group is so disgusting. Imagine what would happen if they simply accepted this man's behavior. Imagine showing up for a home church prayer meeting and the guy is there who everybody knows is sleeping with his stepmom. Everyone in Corinth knows this, not just everyone at home church. And the guy's like, oh, I got a prayer request. Hey, I think my stepmom's coming out to home church tonight. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, I feel like we've really been connecting lately having a lot of really good spiritual conversations. I shared this verse with her the other day, and she was like, whoa, that's so cool. Where can I meet this Jesus that you're talking about here? And so I just, I think she's really close. So just pray for her. And also, could you just pray for my relationship with my dad? You know, I mean, on the one hand, I feel like we're connecting in new ways. But on the other hand, I just feel like he's being real hard on me lately. And I'm just, I'm just praying that I can respond with the love of Christ here. It's really just really a hard relationship. Sorry. I just appreciate you guys' support. So, you know, I just want to, I just want to love my enemies and, um, pray that maybe he'll come around too. So maybe if, maybe if stepmom gets saved, maybe he'll be interested as well. 
that we can witness to him together. Okay, you have just turned everything here into a complete joke. If you're gonna, if you're gonna stand for that. Here we are, the, the complete hypocrisy. No wonder the world looks on and says that Christians are huge hypocrites. You know, demoralized, think about the people who are trying not to go back to the prostitutes at the Aphrodite temple. They're trying as hard as they can to resist and they're like, well, I guess anything goes here. I guess nothing matters in this group. Why am I even trying so hard to resist? It is unsafe all of a sudden to come to this place that's supposed to be safe. We lose the power of God, the support of God for this group here. We're never gonna get anything done. And it's no wonder the church has no impact in anyone's life when we won't take serious sin seriously, when there's an elephant in the room sitting right there and everybody knows it and we're all trying as hard as we can to look away and not talk about it. Especially when the elephant is sleeping with his stepmom. (laughs) And this is Christian community. This is what we're gonna come and talk about the love of God and wave our hands and praise Jesus and pray together. When we got this going on, no way, no way. Christian community is not a place where we passively sit there and watch while my friend in the canoe goes right down the stream and right off the waterfall. And we're like, man, I bet that hurt. (laughs) See you later, wouldn't wanna be you. Glad I'm over here safe. No, that is not what we're about. It's a place where we say, I love you, and no, this cannot go on any longer. I know some of us have never heard those two, those two concepts put right next to each other before. I love you, and no. But with, with Christ, we can finally start to see what that really means. You know, maybe your experience growing up is When people were mad at you, they hit you. They lashed out, at least with their words. And God says, not here. We practiced love, tough love, real love, where I give of myself in every way for your good because I care about you and I want to see you become the person that God has made you. That's what we're into. That's what we're all about. And that's what Paul is calling for here. So we've seen what he wants them to do. We've seen how to do it. We've seen why, for the person's good and for the good of the group. Now, he closes out by talking about who. First he says who we shouldn't practice this on. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. My letter, apparently there's a letter before 1 Corinthians we don't have. And he's referring back to that letter. And even in that letter, he says, you've you got you to not associate with these people who are into this. But he says, I didn't at all mean the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. It's like, I'm not talking about the non-Christians in Corinth. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. This is not, this is not something that we practice on non-Christians. And no wonder... You know, Christians are seen as judgmental hypocrites. They won't deal with the sin right inside their own group, right in front of their eyes, until it gets blown up for a scandal for all the world to see. But we're so busy trying to control non-Christians' behavior 
we come off so judgmental. Paul says, no, you got it backward. He says, you, you love them and you share Christ's message with them. No, though I'm talking about you go after the people right inside your own midst. The people who you have a basis to hold to a higher stand, standard. They got the Holy Spirit. They've, they've got a relationship with Christ. They have power for change. Those are the people I told you to go after for change. Not to avoid sinners. Like we're going to get in this little Christian bubble and stay away from non-Christians. That's, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. No, we, we're trying to do everything we can to share Christ's message with people. No, he says, I'm writing that you not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Yeah, someone that's calling themselves a Christian. I mean, I guess we can't know people's hearts truly, but if they're claiming to be one and they're in our group, I've got some responsibility. They claim to be a brother or sister, but they're sexually immoral or greedy. In fact, he's going to give a list of six pretty serious sins that would qualify, you know, eventually for church, church discipline, this kind of love he's talking about here. Sexually immoral, he's already described one form of this. There's a lot of forms of, of practicing sex not according to the way God designed it. And, um, you know, we... We live in a culture where we're bombarded with, with sex from a very early age with one view of sex that's the opposite of what God says. And uh, people have a hard time resisting. They need the strength of a, a group of Christians here who are really going to take a stand for God's way. But he also throws in another sin, the sin of greed. I bet you some Christians would be surprised to see this one on the list. Greed. Um... You know, this would involve um, teaching greed. You know, teaching that, you know, the, God's way is to try to get as much money as possible. You know, teaching against generosity toward the poor, toward the work of God. Uh, someone that is teaching just directly against simple living and saying, oh, that's whatever. You know, God wants you to be as wealthy as you possibly can. Paul says that attitude is destructive and needs to be opposed. That kind of teaching cannot let that go rampant in this church. That will destroy us if we sell out for greed. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God in money. Uh, an idolater is also on his list. Yeah, there were probably people in Corinth that were part of this church, but they also were tempted to go back and worship in the old ways. And uh, if somebody is claiming to be a Christian, but they're also worshiping other gods as well, that's a problem. And Paul says, you need, to, you, need to, you need to confront that behavior. Like, they can't go on like this. They need to make a choice. A slanderer, that one can be pretty bad. Um, you know, where you're going around talking negatively about other people in your group. A lot of times the slanderer is also making up lies. It's spinning things a certain direction. This can just fracture the unity in a group. Maybe you sit down with that person and say, this has got to stop. I heard you were saying this again. I heard you were saying this about me. We heard you were saying this. Why don't you come and talk to me if you've got a problem with me instead of just going around and talking trash? We can't have that running wild in the body of Christ. Fifth, he says, a drunkard. Yeah, and like I said earlier, even the world sort of has a category for this. Somebody whose life is being ravaged by alcoholism. You do really dumb things. You've got to be careful. God, the God is not against alcohol. He's against drunkenness, though. 
Because you do things when you're drunk that you may regret for the rest of your life. And, um, you know, dependency here can be super destructive, can tear families apart. Some of you have seen this firsthand. And he says, you, you may need to weigh in on this. And this would also include other types of substance abuse, um, other types of drugs that we have today that they didn't have back then. And finally, a swindler. This would be someone who cheats other people out of money. And uh, we've seen this before in our fellowship as well. We had a guy who um, was secretly going around borrowing hundreds of dollars from multiple different people in our home church and other home churches. Turned out when everybody started saying, wait, he owes you a couple hundred too? He owes me a couple hundred too. Hey, he owes me a thousand bucks. It was like three or four grand he had swindled people out of. He had no intention of paying it back. And um, we had to go after the guy going around taking money from people. That's not, that's not cool, all right? It's not an exhaustive list. You know, there's other qualifying sins listed elsewhere, like unruly life, refusal to work when you can, can eventually qualify for this kind of treatment here, 2 Thessalonians 3. Dividing the local church would be related to the slanderer, but not exactly. Gathering groups, gathering factions to speak against the leadership in the local church. Paul says, not cool. You, you need to go after those people. Um, there's probably some that aren't on these lists at all, too. So anyway, it's, it's a representative. It's not exhaustive, and it's, um, it's bad. Bad enough that it really puts, puts people and, and our community in danger. He says, don't even eat with such people. Yeah, you know, he's not saying you can never talk to them or that you give them the silent treatment or you pretend like they're a ghost or something or shun them. Um, but I wouldn't be sitting down watching the game, watching the Buckeyes game with this person. I wouldn't be going to the mall with them. Um, I might get together to talk about what God is showing you and um, if there's any steps you're taking toward turning things around here. I might talk about how's your life going now that you've walked away from God and try to help them interpret some of these experiences and say, I miss you. I'd uh, love to have you back. I'd love to have you agree on this issue. Um, 2 Thessalonians 3 is pretty good. It says, do not um, treat him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so we don't just seal ourselves off. Like for me, I, the way I used to have to do to confront people, it was so hard for me to do. I would just com go completely emotionless and just blast. <laughs> and um, no, it's, it's a connected, loving plea. Uh, sometimes it's your own emotion over the situation that is what breaks through to the person, where you feel it more than they do. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, really bothers me when the whole group gathers together to say, we love you enough to draw the line in the sand and put the relationship on the line. And, you know, one or two people from the group are like, well, I'm just too loving, and I'm just going to hang out. I, I can't do that to this person. And, um, you know, uh, the, the swindler buddy I was talking about earlier, I had another friend who just was like, well, I just, I just really love this person. So kept taking him back in. Every time the guy's life would fall apart, and then he'd walk away for a while, and his life would fall apart, and he'd take him right back in. He was just this, this cushion keeping verse, the earlier verse from happening, keeping the guy from really seeing what his way of life brings. And so, um, you know, Paul says it a couple different ways here, not associating, and uh, we, we need to care enough to hold the line. 
And he sums it up here. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's not who we go after here. Judge those inside. And again, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. So we need to be concerned with what's going on within our midst here. So whatever happened to this guy in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Well, I think there's a good chance that this church listened to Paul, that they took the stand that they needed to take, the stand that was long overdue. And I think there's also a pretty good chance that in the next letter that he writes, 2 Corinthians, that Paul comments on this situation. In 2 Corinthians 2, look what he says. He says, I wrote that letter in great anguish. 1 Corinthians is, I, I totally believe, the harsh letter that he refers to in 2 Corinthians. And he says, I'm not overstating it when I say the man who caused the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. He says, I, I do believe that this was painful for you guys, more painful than it was, even for me to write that letter. If you take the stand with this guy, most of you opposed him and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and to comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. Paul says, I can see this guy. It worked. He broke through. He saw the end of his ways. And he's sorry. And he wants to change it. It looks like the Corinthians were like, are we going soft by letting him back in? Maybe, you know, Paul said, hold him out. And Paul's like, guys, you've won your brother. Forgive him. Comfort him. We don't want him to be overcome by discouragement here. I urge you now, reaffirm your love for him. And this is sweet. I've seen this where we had to take a stand with somebody and then to come back together after it's done and to see they've changed their mind, to embrace the person with tears on both ends. It's a beautiful thing. This is truly the body of Christ. This is truly biblical love at work in a way that you're just not going to see out in the world. This is the love of Christ, what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians. And so, in conclusion, should Christian community imitate the apathy of the rest of the world? Where maybe occasionally we get rid of the negative relationships in our life, but by and large we just stand there and we're like, man, that looks like it's going to hurt. Boy, that guy's really messing his life up. Glad I'm not him. It'd be too risky to say something. Is that the way we're going to be? Or will we become a place of real engagement? Yeah, that sounds a lot better to me. A place of reality, a place of authenticity. Where people gain lasting victory? That sounds pretty good. A place where we care enough to love each other, no matter what the cost? I like the sound of that. Finally, a place where God's love shines into a dark world. That's what God is holding forth. That's what we can be if we take him seriously, if we apply his wisdom to tough love. And that is 1 Corinthians 5. All right, well, that's about it. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, um, you see a lot more in us than we do, for sure. I'm thankful that you love us enough to tell us the truth that you love us enough to hold a higher bar for us too and that you put us in a place where we can become people that we never dreamed of becoming. 
Thank you for the strength and the safety and the closeness of Christian community, God. I pray for anybody here who's not a part of that. I pray that you would, you would convict them of their need for it, Lord. That you would show them a vision for themselves as a part of something like this. And I pray that they would um, have that Passover lamb, Christ, have his blood applied to their lives and pass into eternal life. I thank you, God, for the people who loved me enough to speak up. And I pray that we would not be the kind of Christians that are hypocritically looking the other way, but that we'd be real. And we'd deal with things, and we would hold out for what you hold out for. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.